be willing to take that risk, you know, be willing to jump on that plane opportunities that, that, you know, are there. Fortunately, you know, I don't have many regrets in my life, which is particularly in my career, because I've always taken that right calculated risk on, okay, let's do it. That's the key, you know, and just go for it. You've got nothing else to lose. Just keep on rocking and rolling, you know, it's, uh, and, and collect a lot of good people along the way. Welcome to the Hospitality Mentor Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Turk. Join me as we dive into the personal stories of some of the world's best hospitality professionals. We follow the journey of their ups, downs, and wild turns to find out what it truly takes to make it in the amazing world of hospitality. This episode is brought to you by our podcast partners at Real-Time Reservation. Their inventory management system is best in class for hotels and resorts to manage their non-room inventory. The web-based application allows for creative upselling of overnight and daytime visitors with add-ons and pre-planned packages. Hotel guests and non-guests can reserve cabanas, pool chairs, activities, amenities, excursions, events, day passes, and much more. The real-time reservation platform offers a fully integrated pre-arrival portal where guests are verified through the property management system. Guests can prepay for cabanas and activities through credit card integrations, which are then processed through point of sale. All of our listeners that might be interested in using real-time reservation are welcome to explore the demo at realtimereservation.com. Once again, that's realtimereservation.com. Welcome to another episode of the Hospitality Mentor Podcast. Today, I'm very excited to have Brian Connors, the founding faculty director at the Bacardi Center of Excellence at FIU. Brian, thanks for joining us today. Steve, thank you very much for having me, man. This is going to be a great conversation. Well, Brian, can we get started right away on this podcast. What was your first job in hospitality? <laughs> you know, like many of us, uh, the Hobart Hall of Fame, you know, uh, dishwasher. You know, but the, the ironic part is I'm the, I'm the youngest of four and uh, wow. my mother used to live, you know, these nice little lists for mow the lawn, dust the furniture and so forth up in Connecticut. And on that list was a uh, start dinner or cook dinner. And my siblings didn't want to do it. And I said, you know what? I like doing that. And I was mm -hmm. really young. Uh, and then when I realized that I can actually get paid to do this thing called cooking and learn about restaurants and, you know, get thrown to the deep end of the pool at 14 years old. Uh, I was like, all right, I'm in. So like many of us, it's all about that dishwasher and working your way up. That's awesome. So where were you at dishwasher? Where was the first place? Was it at a big restaurant, small place? Where'd you guys go? Oh, it, it, it was big time. It was Pickles Cafe in Richfield, Connecticut. It had uh, 15 tables. And if we did 135 covers in, in one night, we were big time. Uh, <laughs> but it was, you know, that epitome of uh, American style beef or it had everything from chimichangas uh, to, uh, to the chef salad, to chicken piccata, you know, so coming up from a dishwasher to a line cook, you know, I'll give you one thing, Steve, I learned how to be fast uh, and fast with a knife and, and fast with everything. So uh, by the time my culinary journey began, I had some serious knife skills uh, that are still pretty good. <laughs> so you're dishwashing at Pickles, which I love the name. It's a great t-shirt yeah. I'm sure they had make there. <laughs> what made you keep doing that? How old were you when you were doing it? Yeah, uh, 14 years old, and I stayed at Pickles Cafe until the time I went to culinary school, approximately about three or four years, all through high school. And it became literally, you know, this little ground for guys that were going off to either the CIA or Johnson & Wales, where I went. Uh, and, you know, you had this kind of this door of guys coming through. And I remember my, my first time of, of running a shift by myself at uh, 15 or 16 years old. And I was like, wow, this is actually happening. So this is what, you know, and the, the, the dirty aprons and, and the mm -hmm. dirty that that quickly was gone out, out the door when the time to get to culinary school. So. So you're at Pickles, you're washing dishes. Did you get to get on the line, you said, when you were there? Or yeah. Was it oh, yeah. So I didn't last too long as a dishwasher. <laughs> mm -hmm. I was a dishwasher for maybe about uh, six months. Uh, and then I, I asked, I said, hey, I want to I want to continue doing this and learn how. And I remember this great Haitian gentleman by the name of Messio and Charles. Uh, he's like, no, I'll teach you. And, you know, they, these guys just took you under the wing. And, and literally, instead of getting sauté pans thrown at you, you're on the other side of the line now, you know, working the line. And you're kind of working your way up slowly, but you're Man, that's amazing. So at 15, 16 years old, you start working on the line there. Do you remember your first shift? Were you nervous or you're like, all right, I'm ready to go? Oh, it was a lot. This, we're talking 1988. Yeah, I'm dating myself. Yeah. And again, no one else. 
Uh, but it, it's, uh, I, I really don't remember the first shift, but I do remember the first time I was running the line. You know, it was my buddy Kevin and I, we were like, okay, we're, we're running this brunch together. Let's do this, brother. You know, we're high-fiving in the back and that type of stuff. And uh, it was a great learning ground. Like I said, it taught me speed and it always show up on time, you know, be the first there and the last to leave. And it's, it's a good little, again, that, that gateway to kind of that culinary education or that culinary pathway. So you're going, you're doing this through high school, it sounds like. Then you decide to go make a career of this. So you go straight to Johnson & Wales. Is that where you started? Yeah, you know, it's funny because my my mom said, uh, all right, you know, this is what you want to do. Let's get a degree going and so forth. Now, the, the funny part about it, Steve, is that I actually I lived closer to the Culinary Institute of America, which is a great program. Yes. But the chef that I was working for at the time went mm -hmm. to Johnson & Wales. And he threw his car uh, and we drove up to Providence, Rhode Island. I happened to run into, I was a former hockey player, run into the guys I played ice hockey with. And I was like, wow, this is really cool. And at the time, you know, Johnson and Wales, you know, was that college environment that I was right. looking for. Now, nothing wrong with Hyde Park and the CIA. Like I said, they do an amazing job. And I was like, wow, this is, this is like that way. But I really think it was the chef that I was working for at the time that he's the one that kind of pushed me in that direction to, to start my culinary journey. So you're there for two years, you're learning. And, you know, I've always asked this of people who've gone to that school. Did you find it a value or do you think you could have learned what you were learning in a job somewhere? I'm a firm believer in whatever you put into it, you get out of it. Johnson & Wales was a great program for me. And particularly the style of learning I was, you know, it, it's hands-on, still have the academic part. But I said yes to everything, Steve. I mean, if they needed a volunteer, I was your guy. If it was a guest chef series, I was your guy. And I just kind of fell in love, keep on doing those type of things that were out there. And it got me so far that, you know, Johnson Wales selected me to represent the University of Ireland, two different Michelin star properties, as well as a teaching assistant at a school in Dublin called Cobru mm -hmm. Street. So it's one of those things. And I think any educator, I'm going to speak as an educator now too, Steve, yeah. is that whatever you put into your education, you will get out of it. And don't be a volunteer and put your hand up and do it because that's exactly what I did at culinary school. And it began to open more doors than I ever realized that that were happening. But at the same time, I had to move on from my, my beloved Little Pickles Cafe, uh, mm -hmm. and I took a job at Silver Spring Country Club in Richfield, Connecticut, which is a very well-established, uh, they used to call it our club in the country. But this was some serious players up there uh, on the hill at this beautiful little golf club that they had. But that's also where I kind of said, wait a minute, what's going on out there in the dining room? What, what is this? You know, Because we would have these uh, family Sunday barbecues, and the chef and I would be out at barbecuing and I would start chatting up with the guests, the members and their guests and kind of said, hmm, this is kind of cool. Uh, and the next season uh, I was asked to say, would you be interested in working in the front of the house as well? And one of my great mentors that got me into the wine world, uh, Bob, late Bob Summer, goes, all right, I'm going to give you a shot. And at 18 years old, I was assistant manager at Silver Spring Country Club. And that's really where I kind of did that pivot uh, from that, the no longer in the back of the house, but now also understanding the people side of our business, the guest interaction side of our business, but more importantly, uh, the wine side of our business. And right. we can talk about that mm -hmm. to a blue in the face, but Bob was very instrumental of, of kind of getting me into this, this wine bug. And what it was, Steve, this is a good story, is that I couldn't pronounce things on the inventory. That was one of my responsibilities was to take inventory. And I didn't know what Chateauneuf de Pop or this Brunello de Month, what is all the, you know, it was so confusing to me and almost embarrassing. Yeah. I said, oh, you know what? I'm going to learn everything I possibly could. And Bob was great because Bob would say, go down to the cellar, get a bottle. I don't care what it is. We're going to come and we're going to talk about it. You're going to taste it and go from there. And I think at 19, I'm tasting some incredible wines. You start getting this taste uh, for the good life, if you will, but also that how important the overall whole experience was to the guests there. So Silver Spring was great. And I, I met another great mentor, and I'll get a little choked up, uh, the lead Jack Welch. Oh, wow. Uh, Welch, yeah. Uh, I don't want to you know, get too, too emotional there. He helped me get into Cornell University. That next journey began. I was like, all right. So I'm not going to just stop with this culinary degree particularly my parents were not going to have that. And I said, no, I'll continue on. I'll go get my degree at the Cornell University. Uh, Jack Welch helped me do it. Pretty cool. That's amazing. So we're talking Jack Welch of General Electric, right? You got it. Uncle Jack. <laughs> All right. That's pretty amazing. You know, I was just talking to somebody about moments in life that you just have to be prepared for and ready to, to go and make things happen. Was that one of those moments in your life? Mr. Welsh, as I called him, uh, Uncle Jack, because his nickname we can't do the years, because we, we kept a friendship for... 15 years. So he's one of those great guys that just, 
he took care of it. And, and I, I learned after his death that there's a lot of guys like me, but he liked hard work, Irish American kids that rolled their sleeves up and did it all. And that's all it took. And I said, he offered me a job first. He says, you come work for me at GE. And he had his Boston accent. And I said, yeah, actually, Mr. Welsh, you know, I really want to go to the hotel school at Cornell University. And Jack started laughing. And I was like, uh, and I was like, well, did I say something wrong to me? He goes, yeah, no problem, kid. Frank Rose is on my board. I'll see him this weekend. I'm like, okay. And that's when you realize this whole other world. But there was a lot of great guys and, and members up there that took great care. I love it. I love that story. All right. So you go to Cornell with the help of Uncle Jack, which I love. That story is, is fantastic. So you're at Cornell. And do you miss being in the kitchen? Because you made this transition to the front of house while you're doing this. <laughs> yeah, your, your, your segue is perfect there because, you know, I went and did my time in Europe and did the Michelin stars and, and, and did all that stuff. It was really kind of in the chef game, but I was also getting burnt of the chef game, you know, at a really young age. Because, again, I was right about that 19, 20 years old mark and I wanted out and I just didn't want to be back in the house anymore. And I was like, you know, there's just more, I'm getting to know more and more about wine. I really like this guest interaction and the service delivery aspect of stuff. But uh, another great mentor, Chef Brian Halloran and, and Dr. Chris Muller. Nope. <laughs> they said, no, you're, 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 you got to come to work with us. So we're up at Cornell and sure enough, Dr. Muller drags me down to the Statler hotel. I meet my chef mentor, Brian Halloran and still very good friends today. We were texting yesterday as well as Dr. Muller. And uh, he goes, well, uh, go put your uniform on. I was like, no, no, I'm done. I don't want to know. That didn't matter. But that also wasn't a great experience because there weren't many guys like me at Cornell. There was a handful, but there were many like me that were able to kind of do both front of the house, back of the house, mm -hmm. but at the same time have those culinary skills in the Michelin star background, particularly that chef wanted because it was a lot of French, a lot of that stuff back yes. in the day. But it also positioned me to be then the teaching assistant in the culinary classes, the food and beverage this is the guest chef series. And quite honestly, you know, and a few people that are listening to this podcast will laugh and also kept me in school. <laughs> so uh, being that valuable to the program was good because I had a good time in Cornell. So and you're supposed you. to go have a good time in college. Yeah. But being a TA and being really involved uh, with the Statler Hotel and chef at the time, it was one of those things that instead of getting that letter from the dean saying, get your GPA up, I got the, the, the walk to the office going, get your head out of your ass, kid. Let's go. So. Mm -hmm. And so did you want to be a teacher already at that point or like being in education or is that just something you were doing because they asked you and hey, you were already there and you're the guy who raises your hand? I was good at it, you know, meaning the, the, the kind of explaining because I was taking a very, this is the story of my life lately, a very technical topic such as culinary to non-culinary students and explaining it in a real simple way. And I use that same mantra in the wine world and the spirits world, the beer world and everything we do. Uh, but at the same time, I definitely got the teaching bug because of it. And also, Steve, it was a great way to meet girls. Yeah. So keep that in check. Yeah. So, and Cornell was a very, uh, very nice place like that. Yeah, I hear you. I went to Florida State Hospitality Program. So I think we were, we were thinking yeah. the same thing uh, around yeah. that time. But I wasn't teaching. I was in my fraternity life running around there. Yeah, I had one of those stores. too, but the, that kept me, uh, yes. the, 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 the kitchen and the culinary world always kept me back in, even though the fraternity okay. and everything else at Cornell was keeping me busy as well, the social aspect. But definitely got the, as a teaching assistant at Cornell University is where I got that teaching bug. And I was like, wait a minute, you know, this is something that I'm really passionate about uh, that I should probably kind of pursue even more so. So you're, you're doing that. You're in Cornell till 97. What do yep. you do when you get out? The fun thing is that we get recruited up there by everybody. And I remember, you know, talking to the Hyatts and the Hiltons and the Gallo wineries and that type of stuff. And I was like, you know what? This is just not for me. And at the time, uh, my brother was working, true story, for the Wolf of Wall Street on his boat called the Nadine. A lot of you might have seen that movie, but the boat was called the Nadine. And I thought my brother had the coolest job. Mm -hmm. I was like, wow, look at that. You can travel the world. It's got a helicopter. It's got a seaplane. And, and look at all this stuff. And even when the, the boat sank in 1996, it's a true story. It did sink. And, and I remember... Uh, my roommate at the time, Bill, came into my room up at Ithaca and says, your mom's on the phone. And I picked up the phone. Mom says, hey, Brian, the Nadine sank last night just so you don't see it on CNN. I said, oh. And from there, uh, they went on to start a new boat after uh, Jordan did his thing. And uh, everyone survived, including my now sister-in-law and very good friends of mine in the yacht world. They said, hey, we started this new boat called Starship, Mr. Wayne Heisenga and Bernie Little. And they said, would you be interested uh, in joining us? We just got a spot opened up. And I was like, Okay. So I said, screw it to all the interviews at Cornell. And I jumped on the mega yachts. And this was in 1997 and Starship, which is still around in the waters of Fort Lauderdale. Uh, and you'll see here going everywhere. No longer has a helicopter on it. Uh, but that was a 
143 feet at the time, Steve, that we thought we were big time. You know, yeah. The was a little bit bigger. Comparison to what we see now in South Florida, particularly Miami or uh, down in St. Bart's or wherever it's going to be. But the, the, the yacht world is something that uh, I always came back to in times of need, uh, if you will, particularly monetary need after graduate school and so forth, which you can talk about. But uh, and taking that untraditional path was... Uh, I said, you know what? Yeah, you're right. I'm going to go work on yachts for a while. And that's what I did. And so what was that like? Because I've always wondered, because I've been in hospitality forever. I understand cruise ships yeah. and hotels and vacation rentals and restaurants, but the yacht, mega yacht world, I don't know much about. What was it like? People rose now. I was like, really like below deck? No, it's not like below deck at all. Right, that would um, be my follow-up question. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because um, I get that a lot in students. And you know, we, we try to get students engaged even at FIU when I was at Johnson & Wales before. But uh, particularly my experiences is that when you work with a great crew like I did, you don't kind of change. And even later on in my career, when I came back uh, to yachts, it was through all these different connections. Uh, and at this point in time, most of my career in yachts was in the galley as a chef, obviously. Uh, but also I work in the front. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a boat guy. So I can do boat handling and drive tenders and, you know, do all that stuff. So it was very, I was very valuable. Uh, and as I've said, I've always worked for captains. I didn't work, worry about the program so much. And I have worked for celebrity, mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff on, on the mega yachts. But I worked for the, the, typically the same captains, one being my brother. Yeah. It's just one of those things that you, if you got it and you, you're okay with that kind of lifestyle, it's very lucrative. It, it's, it's great travel. It's great everything. But you're controlled by somebody else, you know, and that's when, you know, it's time to get out uh, of the yacht world. And then that's what I did at that young age. I think in 98. 98 or so, I, I got out of yachting for a while and said, well, I went to school for all this stuff. I might as well go do it. And that brought me to Boston, Massachusetts, and then from Boston to Newport, Rhode Island, uh, to uh, Cookhouse, a very famous restaurant in Newport, Rhode Island. That's the food bar instructor and the, the, the wine nerd there. Uh, so it, it always comes full circle on all that stuff. That's fun. So I have one more question on the, about the yachts. Mm -hmm. Is it trying, was it the goal to make it as personal and anticipate the needs or was it hey here's our program what do you guys want to order today most of the boats that i had the opportunity to work with were private so i knew the owners ins and outs uh, i worked with a professional athlete i uh, cannot mention his name but uh kind of a famous golfer but we had to work with his nutritionist and that type of stuff so and after a while you kind of i was with that program for quite a few years you see how their palates change and even on other programs after that uh vessel you know you get to know the owner's likes and dislikes but you know one of the key kind of almost in many cases words of advice i give a lot of yacht chefs or people that want to do that don't be going out to try and i can do this i can do that the guests don't care ask them what they want and cook it that's all you got to do and that's where people get a little bit uh well i could do this this and i have great sushi now nah, they don't eat sushi so don't worry about that it is part of creating that experience and that type of stuff but my background particularly in the culinary side background in the front of the house came in real handy even on these private vessels because i'd go up and, and be asked to inspect the table settings because I had a formal background in that stuff. Right. Like there was something to do table side as simple as an unpapio to anything because we didn't have flames on boats. You got doing that. And that's where that, that background of the, the formal education, that background of classical styles of, of service were taught. Uh, and it's a dying breed, as you well do know, Steve. So you make the transition into being a food and beverage director, you said. Mm -hmm. And where was the location that you went to? Uh, that was at the Clark Cookhouse and um, Bannisher's Wharf uh, in Newport, Rhode Island. Busy, busy. Still one of uh, one of the busiest restaurants in Rhode Island. Uh, as a matter of fact, the the owner who's quite a character, David Ray, great restaurateur. He looked at me one one time. He goes, Brian, if you I won't do the David Ray voice, uh, but if he says, Brian, if you took a snapshot of this restaurant right now, it's one of the busiest restaurants in the world. And he was not wrong. Uh, we had six bars going, an in-house discotheque, uh, three different concepts, so a sushi bar. That's really kind of where I got my restaurant MBA. Besides getting a real one, uh, it was because it just didn't stop. And it's one of the busiest spots literally uh, in the world, you know, it's particularly in the summer months. But it's kind of, it, it goes hand in hand because you could be one of the busiest restaurants in the world in the summer months, but then come October, it's like the faucet was turned off and you go from crazy busy to nothing mm -hmm. and that's when i went back to teaching as well so i started teaching part-time uh, as an adjunct faculty member at the cambridge school culinary arts in uh, cambridge mass i eat boston and i used to commute twice a week uh during the the off season in newport and started teaching and i was teaching actually front of the have more the the management side of the culinary space and concept development and that type of stuff and that's where i was like wow i, I really enjoy doing this 
Uh, you don't get paid very well to do that type of stuff, Steve, but I really enjoy doing it. You know? So I have two questions on that to walk it back yeah. to being at one of the busiest restaurants on the planet at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a big difference than being on a mega yacht where you're doing a couple covers. Yes, but it's the know, same that. crowd. <laughs> right. And so what is it like when you're pumping out so many covers? Was it a shock to the system or you're like, all right, I got this. You seem like a guy who can adapt to No, I, I I love it. You know, it's almost you, you become that adrenaline junkie, you know, mm-hmm. in many cases, you know. At the time, I think I was doing about uh, 1.3, million in wine sales. I was in charge of a wine program. I was, again, because of my background, I can work in the fine dining. I can work with that. But I was also in charge of all six bars, 16 bartenders, inventory control, coverage program. And back then, you know, uh, there was cocktail culture. We were, you know, slinging vodka tonics over a bar. Yep. But these are some of the busiest bartenders. And it's funny, if you go to the Clark Cookhouse now, you will still see uh, those bartenders there. Uh, that are there. Oh yeah, you know, some are a little bit old, you know, getting long in the tooth, like Jonathan Furby, but uh, just for my buddy there. Yeah. Uh, but they're they're still they know they know what they're doing. I'll put it to that one. We gotta come sit down and have a drink with Jonathan. We'll give him a shout out. So <laughs> yeah, he'd like that. You're yeah. doing that, and you get into teaching. Was it just because you needed something to do, or you had missed teaching? That's what I wanted. You always seem to come back to being in the education space. So was that something that someone reached out to you to do? Yeah, I found great success, particularly at the Clark Cookhouse, of again taking that top that complex topic, i.e. now the wine program and breaking it down to, now my goal was to increase sales uh, and to, you know, sell more wine. But I realized right there and then that these, that stories sold wine. So I, you know, before my shift, particularly, uh, I think it was on a Friday, I used to do a study and I would go in my, you know, little chase lounge in my backyard in Newport, Rhode Island and and study through, you know, everything I could. And then I'd go at the pre-shift meeting uh, downstairs, particularly then upstairs at the cookout. And I would do these little wine lessons uh, that turned out to be very, very successful that because what I saw was the sales went up, but I also realized I said, oh, I really like doing this and having this connection, getting the reactions out of the people and so forth. Uh, and that's where the, the, the Cambridge school kind of really, because again, there weren't many guys like me that are doing the culinary side, yeah. the front of the house side, the wine side, and, and all these things back then. Uh, and that's really kind of why I said, wait, I can keep on doing this. Uh, and, but I was also, you know, I didn't want to get bored. Because the winter months uh, and the, the cold season in Newport, Rhode Island, uh, you had the tumbleweeds. And I, I do have remember the one night, as remember when I said one of the busiest restaurants yes. in the world to not one guest walking in. It's tough on the brain. So yeah. it was really about, uh, you know, keeping my, my, my other side of my brain going. Especially for young people. I can see, like, for me, it was like that where wine's intimidating to you because it's like, wow, it's a mm-hmm. whole world I don't know about. Like you said at the beginning, I don't know how to pronounce these words. I've never tasted them. So for yep. someone starting out, what advice do you give them to learn or be able to teach people about wine? Because you were doing it both at a young age. Yeah, yeah, very much so. You know, the, the advice is simple. Is, and this one always likes taste everything you possibly can. I got lucky a lot through my career with generous people saying, okay, well, you're going to taste it like the Bob Summers of the world and so forth. I started doing the same thing uh, with wait staff and, and, and including the back of the house because I'd be like, I want them to understand what this is right. uh, and so forth. And tasting is always key, but then, you know, reading, listening, whatever your method of uh, learning is, everything you could possibly get your hands on and, and check it out. And don't be afraid to take a deep dive. You know, at the time that restaurant in Rome, we were heavy California, heavy French. I was very intimidated by uh, Italian wines. And today it's one of my specialties. I also have the opportunity to work for an Italian vineyard. But, you know, just take that dive. You got to jump right into it because you're never going to know everything in the wine world. And that's one of the beauties of it. But don't be afraid to say, okay, I'm going to learn everything I possibly can about the Rhone region. And then, okay, I got, I'm, now I'm going to go to Loire. I'm going to go to Bordeaux and so forth because it's a journey, you know, and I say that a lot when I have the opportunity to teach wine courses. And I typically do once or twice a year, I'll teach at FIU uh, in our wine program. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, it's a journey and you just got to kind of get into it and don't look back. And a lot of times students today, they get the wine bug and I absolutely fall in love with it because I'm like, wow, you're seeing this whole new world open up to you. So I want to talk more. I want to save some time so we can talk about what's going mm-hmm. on now, but I want to continue on your journey. So sure. you're, you're in Newport. You're at the, the busiest and slowest restaurant on the planet. <laughs> I will put. You're teaching. Where do you go from there? Yeah. You know, it's, it was time to go to graduate school. Uh, that great mentor, I, you know, Dr. Muller goes, kid, what are you doing? Uh, you're a hell of a, because I used to fly down to FIU, uh, excuse me, to uh, UCF, Freudian slip there, mm-hmm. uh, and guest lecture with Dr. Muller, because I had him at Cornell. He left to go start the Rosen College at UCF, which is a great school like uh, in Florida, like your own. 
Uh, but I said, yeah, sure. So literally on my vacations, I'd go down to Orlando to teach with Dr. Muller. What the hell's wrong with me? Instead of going to St. Bart's or St. Martin's, I'm going to go to lovely Orlando and, yeah. and teach classes there. Uh, but that's when Dr. Muller says, kid, time for you to go to graduate school and, and take it to the next level. Uh, so that's what I did. Uh, after almost five years, uh, give or take a little at the Clark Cookhouse, it was time to go to graduate school mm -hmm. uh, and really kind of take that dive into the, the teaching space, uh, which we did. So I was accepted to, I think I was the first or second graduate program at the Rosen School, if I recall. But at the same time, uh, down the street from uh, where I lived and right close to campus uh, was Orlando Culinary. I just literally was driving by. I said, let me go throw my resume in. And they needed a guy like me that was able to teach the front of the house, teach wine, teach all that stuff. Uh, and I quickly said, great. Yeah, I'd love to do it. So I was actually teaching there during the day, going to grad school at night. Uh, covering whatever classes I had to cover for faculty over at UCS. Wow. But yeah, that's where, you know, I was like, okay, you know, because that, that old saying that this is the beginning of that 10,000 hours, like Malcolm Gladwell. So this is what it's all about because you were in it. Um, again, you don't do it to get rich. You do it for the love of the game and the passion. And then the ability to develop other people uh, is really where it went. But uh, right. um, I treated graduate job um, and it went by very quickly, but I did very well at it. I enjoyed it. I think they had a great program going there and, and it's even grown to be even more significant now, mm -hmm. which is fantastic. But from graduate school, you know, I uh, got the opportunity to work for Bantry Vintners uh, as a wine educator, as well as their academic relations, something like that. Uh, but in other words, I was in charge of hospitality and culinary schools and kind of spreading the gospel, if you will, of uh, Italian wines. But at the same time, put me in front of thousands of different students brought me to Italy a lot. That's where, again, you, you learn by doing in this case, but uh, spending a lot of time in Montpacino and traveling all throughout Italy, you get pretty good at it. Uh, but that was a lot of time on the road, a lot of time away. But then, you know, of course, other opportunities knock and uh, there was an opening uh, at Johnson and Wales University in North Miami. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the late Dr. Alan Simon gave me a shot there too, because again, guess what? They needed a guy like me that can do culinary. My joke, and even moving forward to today, is I teach everything accounting because Dr. Simon knew that I could take a course, uh, create something new, get a lot of hype, get a lot of buzz about it, get students really excited about it. And I uh, spent 11 years uh, at Johnson Wales in North Miami, but at the same time was heavy, heavy into consulting. I was traveling a tremendous amount of consulting work, particularly with the cruise industry, with celebrity cruise lines. And, being their wine educator and beverage consultant and then Caribbean islands and Caribbean resorts, doing a lot of troubleshooting uh, in both front of the house and back of the house. So, you know, these kind of this interesting background I've always had uh, seems to work yeah. for the consulting space. Yeah, you know what I mean? it's amazing to see that you've been at so many different universities. Are they all unique or is that like kind of like hotels? Like they all have their little differences, but a lot of them are similar because they all want to do great. Or was it, wow, this place is doing it really well. I wish I could do that here. What did you see when you were at all these different top tier universities? Johnson and Wales, particularly back in the day, it has shifted slightly. They still, they still do a great job. They attract a certain learner, you know, that, that is that kinesthetic or that hands-on. I, I love that style of learning as well. They, at the time, you know, and I, I still will say quite with a lot of confidence that, you know, there's the CIA and there's... Johnson Wales. There's a lot of great little startups out there, but those are your two majors out there um, that are there. Uh, and then for, you know, now today at, at FIU, we have, again, we have a, a different style learner at, at FIU. Uh, but it's funny, I was uh, guest lecturing for the late Chip Cassidy. I was representing Chablis uh, in Burgundy of all places. And uh, I reached out to the dean at the time and, and his name was Dr. Mike Hampton. He was a great guy. Yep. And I said, for thank him for having me, whatever I was doing, probably kissing ass. Uh, and Dr. Hampton pinged me right back and said, can you, can you come please teach it for us? And I was like, well, I kind of can't do that. But, uh, of course I said, yes, uh, got me into a little bit of trouble. That's okay too, because that's where I am today. And that's kind of a little trouble is okay every once in a while. Yeah. You know? so. And so for people who are out there teaching, you were also consulting, right? So mm -hmm. you had a, a strong consulting business. You've been doing it since 2003. You're almost at your 20 years. It looks like of yep. having that consulting business. Yeah. How were you able to make that? So if somebody was saying, man, I'm teaching, but I would really like to be able to consult and, and make some money that way too. How would you advise someone who's starting out doing that? Fantastic question, Steve, because in very much my opinion, you need to have both. 
my mother always taught me, you know, always have a great little steady income, which was that teaching world, uh, which also gives you great benefits and so on and so forth. But number one, be very honest to your, to your bosses, what you're not, you know, what you're doing. For example, at FIU, you know, we're encouraged to consult because that puts us out in industry doing these type of things. Mm -hmm. uh, Johnson & Wales, I was always very uh, upfront as well with my department head, but we had the perfect schedule. Right there, that when you were done with class, uh, particularly in my case, in the winter months, let's say, uh, I would then go jump on a cruise ship. Uh, I would take the ship down to St. Martin or St. Thomas. Uh, and then from there, train uh, the sommelier team, train the front of the house team, the bartending team, whatever it's going to be. Either jump on another ship to take a ride back to Fort Lauderdale or Miami, and I'd be back by Monday morning in some cases, mm -hmm. just in time to run to class uh, and that type of stuff. So it's always about that time management. And then during the summer months, you know, when our schedules are, are lighter, you know, that's when I go to Alaska for weeks at a time. That's where I go to the Mediterranean for weeks at a time. I go to the Baltic Sea for weeks at a time and try to get as much done as I possibly could. Uh, but then even with some of the resorts and that type of stuff, it's just about time management and kind of being a little bit of an open book. Yep. But what it really brought benefits was, was that not just monetarily, obviously, but I'd bring these stories back to the classroom. And that gives you this whole new level of, wow, uh, Professor Honors is a, mm -hmm, you know, like, wow, he's legit. Or he just gives you that street cred, you know what yeah. I mean, real quick going, because you're not that, you know, and I've always considered myself, even though I'm approaching that big birthday, you know, young faculty, but you had to go out and do it and show your learners that you were still out there doing it and you're bringing your expertise and you're, you know, practicing what you preach. That was always key. So it can be done, but I think uh, it's always beneficial to have that, you know, the clout of being a faculty member or now, you know, Professor Connors, uh, because it gives you uh, the ability to say, wow, all right, you know, and then bring that back to the classroom. I love it. I love hearing that. And so are people calling you or are they calling the university and say, hey, I need someone to help me with this? Or were you reaching out to people? How did you start getting clients that way? Yeah, they would start uh, calling me, uh, but we would get some leads uh, through the university and even we still do that. But again, you know, we have to sign our non-disclosures and all that type of stuff that's out there. But mm -hmm. mainly, particularly in the consultancy space, it's always word of mouth uh, from previous either projects or clientele or so forth. Because that's how we always survive. You know, it is your reputation is key. I think you nailed it. It's all about reputation and, and the, the job you've done and how you leave people feeling that you provide a true value. I see it all, every day. There you go. I like that one. Yeah. So you're at Johnson & Wales. You have a good run. And you said Mike Hampton gives you a call convinces yeah. you to come join him over at FIU. Is that what happens? Uh, I got to give a little street cred to Dr. Chang, uh, because at the time, now our dean, he was the director uh, of food and beverage program. And he says, and Michael's also knew that I could teach all this crazy. He said, well, you could teach culinary, you could teach this, you could teach that. I'm like, yeah. Um, and I started teaching more and more at FIU. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Johnson Will wasn't too happy with me doing that. Right. But I also uh, knew that when opportunities knock, you, you got to move forward. So uh, when a full-time position came available uh, and it was looking for someone like me, go figure, I applied and, and then I knew it was time to transition because, you know, any job after 10 years, that's a hell of a run. No one's going to say, you know, oh, you, you're already leaving. No, I did 10 years. Mm -hmm. And that's where that the, the official, you know, 10,000 plus hours uh, was put in, uh, but then transitioned uh, in 2018 uh, over to FIU Chaplain School of Hospitality. Kind of started around 16, but went full time right. in uh, 18, uh, which worked out uh, and still is working out quite well. So, for the listeners who don't may not know FIU, what can you give them like the 30 second download here of what you are a part of? Because it's truly one of the best hospitality programs in the entire world with everything going on. So why don't why don't you say it instead of coming from me? No, no, it's sometimes better when it comes from you, but absolutely, you know, the, the chapel school is a top ranked uh, and continuing to climb in those ranks just because of our innovation, our creativity, our faculty, our location as sexy as can be. We have a great dean, a great leadership. Our dean is willing to take risks, which I love, which we'll talk a little bit more about with our partnership with Bacardi. Uh, but that's it, you know, and location, 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 you know, uh, some people have gorges and snow, but we got the beaches and we got the South Beach Food and Wine Festival, uh, which our students are heavily engaged with as our major partnerships. Uh, but we're unique because of our partnerships. We're unique of our, with our ability to move quicker, uh, as well as take calculated risks uh, and create this environment for the students that, it, that uh, is very unique. 
So it, uh, thank you for the compliment, though, Steve, because yeah, no. it is a it's a program that's uh, we are just on the move, man, and yeah. in all the right ways. You know, I worked at the Lowe's Miami Beach Hotel for many years. I was director of food and beverage there in my last role. And I saw your students come through there, especially during Wine and Food Festival. And they were eager to learn. They were ready. They were actually helping, not getting in the way like some other students yep. might. Uh, so they were they were trained well. So tell us, what is going on there when you start? So you get there because it's changed a lot from the time you've started there. And the yeah. That um, going. So how does it start transitioning? You get there, you're teaching. They find a superstar and, and Brian Connors has joined the team. <laughs> what happens? Yeah, you know, it goes back to them saying, I, I can teach everything but accounting. Uh, but we was, I was teaching a 4-4, which is a lot, uh, meaning you're, you're teaching four full-on courses, uh, then over the summer months and so forth. Mind you, still consulting at, at the same time. But the kind of the, the, the transition that really kind of took place was, Right before COVID, uh, when Dean Chang came to me, we were actually up in Orlando, of all places. And he says, you know, Brian, we've been talking to Bacardi North America, and they really want to partner with us and create something really unique. Uh, would you be interested in leading it? I went and called my fiance at the time, now my wife. I said, you know, I was just having this conversation with Dean Chang. And uh, now, uh, record reflect that, you know, because I am always been considered a wine guy. Um, mm -hmm. Yes, I know spirits. Yes, I know beer. Yes, you know, I'm a great generalist like that. But I was even told the champ, like, well, I'm a kind of a wine guy. He goes, yeah, yeah. He goes, but it's your background. He goes, it's your ability. And I was like, okay. You know, I had the opportunity to meet with uh, Pete Carr, Ryan Bibbo, just these great guys at Bacardi USA. Uh, and I said, yes, I was like, yeah, let's do it. I, I think I used the, the F word or mm -hmm. as well, but I said, let's do it. And the, the magic of COVID, then, uh, we signed an agreement in uh, January of 2020, mm -hmm. uh, where we're getting things, we got a strategy in play. We're ready to rock and roll, but this is where, you know, a lot of probably your guests say, oh, then COVID happened, but the pandemic was good to us, baby. And I'll tell you why, because we were able then to get all these amazing resources of people that were home, that were not doing exactly what they were doing before, or they had this little bit of extra time and we had all this support. And I was like, wow. And then the Dean uh, came to me and says, Brian, let's create Bacardi Teach, where we're able to give back uh, to our industry right now for people to be able to upskill and so forth. And at my disposal was literally some of the best brand ambassadors, mixologists in the world. Yep. Uh, we had the resources of the fabulous group of team enterprises with, with uh, Sean O'Toole and Dan Gregory and these guys that said, what do you need? We're going to do it. We took a project, Steve, that should probably take <laughs> a year and change. We did it in about three months and launched uh, Bacardi Teach to give back. And we literally created thousands of certifications of individuals, uh, Dale Gomez, Joe Chili. Uh, Nathan Dodge, these guys all jumped right in and we, we saw something, we said, whoa, let's do this. And we did that also with uh, the South Beach Food and Wine Festival Relief Fund. This was all going on simultaneously. Yeah. And that's what I said, like the pandemic was good to us because it really brought this talent to the next level with the success of Bacardi Teach. We also then had Bacardi Talks, which is kind of like our version of a TED Talks. Yep. Uh, then we had our podcast, uh, Two Bars, Tools, and a Knife. We talked about that earlier. That took off. So again, all these things were, you know, strategy was 100% in place, but it worked for us because we had suddenly people that were no longer traveling or doing their normal everyday things. Right. So we were able to kind of elevate uh, our partnership and a very unique partnership with Bacardi USA right off the bat. So we came out of the gates roaring, if you will, uh, including our first of its kind spirits management track, where I wrote all the curriculum for that, that includes courses, not just on fine spirits, but also on beverage law, on marketing and distribution. So we really took oh, a, wow. a deeper dive into what was going on. More importantly, what does the industry need in the future? Uh, and kind of went from there. So uh, as I said, uh, the pandemic was good for us in that case because we had a great success record uh, and got a lot of great notoriety. Coming out of the pandemic, same thing. We, and still today, we do not take our foot off the throttle. Uh, we are going, 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 and we are in year four of our partnership uh, with Bacardi USA. Happy to say today we have some of the best faculty uh, teaching within our program. We, we were talking about our friend, mutual friend, uh, Professor Ben. Ben Potts, sorry, Ben, yeah. uh, that's uh, now teaching our bar dynamics course. Fantastic. Partnered up with Perlick. I mean, he's a rock star. Gabe Ruti, another rock star that's out there. Uh, you know, 
but even on the law side, we're bringing in some of the best beverage lawyers that are out there that they're all, you know, like our friend Ben, they, they want to get back. They want to develop these next generation of leaders, particularly in the beverage space. And, you know, just to make sure that we're very clear, we are educating beverage professionals. We get, are you guys creating bartenders? Do our students know how to mix? Yep. Do they know uh, proper methodology? Absolutely. But we are creating beverage professionals of the future. Uh, and that's one of the very unique things about the Bacardi Center of Excellence is that we're, we're in it uh, in all the right ways. Um, yeah, I love hearing and that. And, and a shout out to Ben Potts, because I think he's a yeah, perfect man. example of those is he went from being an investment banker to working his way up through some of the top bars and now being one of the best bar people in the country. So if you haven't heard Absolutely. that episode, go back and listen to his journey because it's a really good one. And so having people like that on your team is great for your students. And and that's true because that's, you know, it goes right back to one of the key pillars we believe in is bringing industry into the classroom. Uh, when I found out Ben Potts had an MBA, I was like, oh boy, buddy. It took a little convincing, Steve, believe it or not, but uh, he, he's a rock star to say the least. And, you know, now we're getting ready to kind of uh, launch our next wave, uh, which is our Beverage Academy, uh, which is industry-driven uh, certifications for professionals as well as enthusiasts, where you'll have the Ben Potts, the geese of the Voice Month Filter Hospitality. Uh, that's being led by Mitch, uh, Mitchell Meredith, who you, you met via mm -hmm. email, uh, another industry rock star that's out there. So we're looking forward to launching that. Uh, we're going to do a little bit of a beta, beta test in the coming weeks and then full-on launch uh, into August and into the fall, which is our next semester coming up. Uh, so that's the Beverage Academy at FIU, which has been fantastic. And, you know, and I can't not have this conversation with you without talking about our innovation and our innovation fund. Um, this is what I want. So uh, some of you that are listening it probably have seen our crazy bartender called Cecilia, uh, which is the first uh, artificial intelligence bartender in industry. And trust me when I say this, Steve, I got a lot of pushback when I did this one, but it's okay mm -hmm. to take a risk. It's okay to take a calculated so uh, these crazy guys from Israel reached out to me because of my cruise background. And I met with them uh, at the Intercontinental Hotel. It looked like a Miami Vice drug deal going bad. Uh, <laughs> I walk in, um, a couple of my colleagues are supposed to join me and they couldn't make it. So I'm up there in this, you know, kind of penthouse suite with these two guys from Israel with funny accents and this computer that's seven feet tall. And, and I was like, what is going on? But uh, we started talking and we did a demonstration and I looked at them and I said, you guys, uh, you ever heard of the South Beach Food and Wine Festival? And they said, yeah. And I said, would you like to bring Cecilia to the South Beach Food and Wine Festival? This is right when, when COVID was coming out. And yep. again, got a little bit of pushback from people, and uh, but a little bit of convincing. But we were very strategic about how we did it and what the mission was. Uh, Cecilia's job is never to replace a bartender. Cecilia is to create a new experience. And think about those opportunities. You know, you and I both have that cruise background, but the cruise ship opportunity, win-win. Uh, the theaters, you know, picture that, you know, the intermission, win-win. But we also looked at it as a way to help in the labor shortage at the time. So this is in 2022. So we took that labor shortage in this technology because now everyone's talking about artificial intelligence and, and chat GPT and that type of stuff. But we looked at this and said, mm -hmm. wait a minute, let's get ahead of this one. And we did. Uh, we put together a really savvy media project. Or uh, I like saying this number, and I'm very proud of it. We were able to generate $118 million worth of, that's $118 right, million dollars of earned media uh, with Cecilia, with FIU, with Bacardi, all at the forefront. Uh, I was featured on the Today Show. I was featured on Fox and Friends. Yeah. It's funny. I went to my uh, high school reunion that following uh, summer. That people go, Connors, I saw you on today's show. I'm like, yes, you did see me. I, mean, but I was kind of <laughs> cool on that one. But uh, it was the ability yeah. to take that calculated risk. It was the ability to have, uh, you know, a way to enhance an overall experience. But also, this was an amazing learning opportunity for our FIU learners because they saw us doing this. You know, Christina Mogal, who's our assistant director, uh, she is our Cecilia Whisperer. Uh, she's now been, you know, up and down the East Coast. We're actually talking right now to bring her over to Tales and the Cocktail coming up in July. That's still in the talks. Uh, but uh, people realize that uh, embracing this level of technology is important. Uh, Bacardi has been phenomenal with it. We brought Cecilia out to Las Vegas uh, that also that same year to their national just so people saw that, you know, hey, there's these other opportunities coming down the road. And we're not done yet on the innovation side because we're always looking. Israel's been an amazing partner, you know, with, with startups out of there, but they also now feed on to each other. 
uh, where mm-hmm. the team over there from the Cecilia team, they'll introduce us to the right people uh, that puts us in this whole new light out there from Israel. Uh, and it, if you don't know, I mean, Israel is a startup nation. I mean, Israel is a small little nation, but boy, uh, they got it going on when it comes to innovation, when it comes to, again, that calculated risk type thing out there. So we're always looking for new opportunities. And that's the, the gift, literally the gift of the Bacardi Innovation Fund, that with our success, we're able now to do what? Take more risks, uh, expose yep. our students to even more of these experiences coming out. So uh, we haven't stopped and we're not going to. I love hearing that. So I'm big into this. I've been... It was funny. I had bought a website back in 2014, hospitalityrobotics.com, and actually sold it for a a nice sum uh, last year where it seems like it took off. But I've always been into that because at one point I had a staffing company. I saw my team needed to be more efficient, but the technology just wasn't there yet. And you're starting to see these things everywhere kind of starting to come out. And I like how you say it where it's not replacing people. I think it's assisting them. Mm-hmm. You can use those people then to help give better customer service. Yeah. Is that something that you all see that you're teaching or is that because it, it's coming, it, whether it, we it, like it or not, it's coming. So how do you start teaching that now? Cecilia is still with us. She has her in residence, as we call it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we always look for opportunities to, but it's funny because a lot of people are like, well, we didn't know you did that. I'm like, wait, we didn't see, we we're all over the media. Yeah. But even this year we brought down Wally uh, and Wally is a, a beer dispensing robot. Uh, and that's again, young startup out of uh, South Carolina. Grayson is a, is a great guy that did that. But we, then we also teamed up with FIU Brew. Uh, and also for beat culture and started to actually uh, feature the uh, FIU Sunblazer beer. But case in point, this is actually in our beverage entrepreneur class that we expose our students to this as well as then we, if we bring something like that on the campus, we, we leverage it as much as we possibly can. Uh, but so they see where this is beneficial for now. We're going into the arena space. We're going into the festival space, that type of stuff. Yeah. So it's always constantly looking for what's next in that space, yeah. because this is the opportunity to expose these learners, to expose the next generation of beverage professionals to these type of things. No, I love it. I love seeing all the creative things coming out of what you're doing. Um, and just for listeners, if you're curious, you can see what they're doing because they share it online. You see a lot of news media from it. I saw it all over the place. But also, like, if you look at Royal Caribbean, they have their maker shaker robots that are, you know, fully robotic with an assistant that helps finish off the drink. So I like that they're still human there. It's not just the robot doing everything. Yeah, and the 2.0, Cecilia, is going to be coming out, too, that will have that capability uh, for ice, the capability for garnish. You know, we teamed up with uh, Filthy Foods and Daniel Singer with those guys with Filthy Product. Yep. And boy, you know, it's, it's a home run, man. Just a home run. I love hearing it. So I'm not asking like what you're most excited about in the next five years. But let's say in the next 12 to 24 months, what are you most excited about going on at FIU? Uh, our global reach, you know, that's what it's all about next. Because, you know, we got our track record. Uh, we're doing great things. But, you know, I've been kind of also challenged by Bacardi uh, to say, okay, but what's next? You know, we're, we're going to take our show to Bermuda. We're going to take our show to Belize. You know, we're looking for these, you know, outlets report and develop um, the, this kind of next generation. So take what we have, right, uh, and bring it to that next level. And also part of that level, something we're really excited about um, is Future Proof. Uh, I've talked about Bacardi Teach and the success of Bacardi Teach, but it's now because of the success transformed uh, with an investment from Bacardi USA into Future Proof. And it's currently uh, available online at futureproof.edu, fiu.edu, or just Google Future Proof Bacardi, Future Proof uh, Bar. And you can go on there uh, and take courses at your own leisure for certification. But more importantly, we're getting ready uh, to drop uh, better bar methods with our friends Ben and Guy. Uh, we've had a lot of their amazing content in the hopper. Uh, unfortunately, you know, due to some old politics, it got uh, back show, but we're actually getting ready to launch that in the coming weeks where, you know, if you listen to that podcast, we're giving a lot of shout outs to our friend yeah, like uh, Ben Potts here, but good one. Uh, if you listen to his podcast, he talks a little bit about it, but you can now go on to Future Proof and earn. And there's some of their content is just, I mean, if you are that bartender, you want to take that next level to a, a beverage professional, that next level to bar manager or whatever it's going to be uh, purchasing this is the course for you, better bar methods, because these guys have such great methodology when it comes to internal systems, and they give you all the tools you need. You walk out of there with a better bar method certification uh, from FIU Chaplain School. It's it's a win-win. Uh, and then, of course, our executive education programs, uh, which we're seeing just take off as well now, because everyone's realizing that, you know, we all thought we're going to live in, you know, live by Zoom, but 
hey, you know, we got to have that human connection, particularly us in the hospitality industry. As uh, Dr. Muller says, we've got to be able to smell them. But we're watching our executive education department kind of take off up from there as well, because, uh, again, opportunities, people want to upskill, people want to do all these things. So you're always this mixed methodology now of tools such as Future Proof, tools such as Better Bar Methods, but then, of course, uh, bodies on the ground, uh, people on the ground doing it again is is crucial. And you mentioned it. Uh, I'm a big believer in people meeting in person. And so mm-hmm. you may have seen we're, we're hosting our first hospitality mentor networking event at uh, Buzzy Sklar's Place Tropical Distillers. And Brian, I hope I can see you there and maybe even Cecilia. We're going to try and figure out if we can get her there. That's, that's, that's kind of a word of the street, yeah, my friend. Yeah, see if we can so. get her there. So for, for listeners, make sure you check the notes for the link to come to our first event, July 19th at Tropical Distillers here in Miami. But Brian, back to you. I've had you for a while here, and I want to ask one more question of you. So if young Brian, who was starting out at Pickles, was uh, (laughs) starting out today in the industry with everything you've learned at all the different places you've taught and all the places you've worked, what advice would you give young Brian if he was starting out today? Oh, keep your head down, kid. You know, I'd say, uh, you know, keep on doing exactly what you're doing. Uh, Listen more than you talk. Uh, Sometimes easier said than done. Be willing to take that risk, you know, be willing to jump on that plane opportunities that, that, you know, are there. Fortunately, you know, I don't have many regrets in my life, which is particularly in my career, because I've always taken that right calculated risk on, okay, let's do it. You know, if it's that 19 year old kid that jumped on a plane to Europe for his first time, not my first time without the family, if you will, uh, and working in these, you know, Michelin star properties, you know, getting yelled at in French when that wasn't your first language, you know, and that type of stuff. That's the key, you know, and just go for it. You, you got nothing else to lose. Just keep on rocking and rolling, you know, it's, uh, and, and collect a lot of good people along the way. And uh, I'm happy to say I still do a lot of that collecting of great people and, and have the opportunity now to work with a lot of them and, and call a lot of them long-term friends. Gosh, I think that's great advice. And it's for listeners, you know. Brian gave us a lot of great tips. So just make sure to rewind a couple times, not while you're driving. Just make sure you, you listen to some of the tips he gave because you really shared a lot today. Brian, really grateful you spent this time with us today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Steve. Great conversation. This podcast is brought to you by Biscayne Coffee. Biscayne Coffee was founded with a giving spirit and a big idea to enjoy delicious coffee roasted in Miami while helping save Biscayne Bay and the animals that live there. As a former food and beverage director, I can assure you these are some of the best quality beans on the planet. 10% of every coffee sold is donated to nonprofits to help preserve Biscayne Bay for all to enjoy. Visit BiscayneCoffee.com today and use promo code MENTOR at checkout to save 10% on your first order. Drink good coffee and create a good outcome.